Good morning. We're journeying through the Gospel of Mark. Last week, Curtis preached on verses 1 through 8, introducing John the Baptist. Now, if the people who heard John knew their scriptures, uh, they would have known that he was a prophet, that he was from God. How can we know that? Well, uh, he, his clothing was of camel's hair and a leather belt. And in 2 Kings, when Elijah came on the scene, he was known to be wearing a garment of hair with a belt of leather. So if they kind of knew their scriptures, they say, well, this is possibly a prophet of God, a messenger of God who has a message for us. And then we see in verses 2 and 3 a quotation from Isaiah. Um, uh, and uh, what we see is, prepare the way, make his path straight. If you want God to intervene, if you want God to come, no more crooked ways and crooked paths. We need straight paths, straight paths of integrity, of righteousness. That was what John was calling them to in preparation for introducing Jesus, who was going to come into their midst. This was not about being nice or cleaning your foul mouth up with soap or, or attending church. That's not the kind of cleaning that he was looking for. He wanted them to change their way of life. They had strayed away from God in disobedience. They want, he, he called them to turn around 180 degrees and go toward God. That was the repentance that John was talking about. If we want, to act God, if we want God to act on our behalf, we have to align ourselves with God's view and way of life. Now we see this uh, in, in history. If we look at Jonah chapter 3. We see Jonah preaching in Nineveh. Now, when you would typically look at Jonah, we look at chapter 1, where he's swallowed by the big fish and so on. But something else happens to Jonah. He was a reluctant prophet. He didn't want to do what God wanted him to do. So God had to get him to do what God wanted him to do. So here he's preaching, Jonah chapter 3, verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. They were under the influence of God's word. Something had happened. They were in total repentance mode. Uh, the word reached the king. So it was not just the people, it was the king. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he pro issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and, the, and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Even the cows got on their knees, and so did the sheep and the donkeys and everybody else. This was total uh, overwhelming influence of God's word. They heard it, and they repented. And see what God does. Who knows, says the king, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Catch verse 10, so beautiful. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. 
do we want to experience his powerful presence in our lives? The first step would be to examine ourselves. See if there is any unconfessed sin. Repent and move toward God because repentance attracts God's favor. So John was a messenger from God, uh, empowered by the Spirit of God, we saw, to call people to repentance. And he said, well, the one coming after me would baptize also. Baptism means immersion. But he was going to baptize, namely Jesus, was going to baptize in the Holy Spirit. So that brings us to what we're going to look at today, verses 9 through 15. Verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John John in the Jordan. So the focus is shifting. In verse 5, we read all the country of Judea was going out to him. Then we see all the people of Jerusalem was going up to him. And now the focus shifts from all to Jesus who is coming to John. The mode is the same, immersion. The location is the same, Jordan. The baptizer is the same, John the Baptist. Just the subject changes from all to Jesus. The focus comes in. So now some of you are probably asking, well, if Jesus, why, if he was sinless, why did he have to get baptized? What kind of repentance was that? Was it a repentance for the forgiveness of sins? Well, Mark doesn't tell us that. The details, obviously, is not important to Mark. Just like all writers, uh, they add details and take details away depending on what they are trying to accomplish with their writing. In the case of Mark, as you will see, it is all about what it means to be a disciple. So this particular detail was not important to Mark, so it is not recorded there. However, if we peek into the Gospel of Matthew... We, we have a little glimpse of why Jesus came through to be baptized. We find Jesus coming, and John, it says, prevented Jesus from being baptized. Jesus says, though, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, Jesus is telling John, look, Permit me to do this this time. This is a one-time thing. This is a unique thing. It is the right thing to do because that's what God wants me to do. Uh, Not too much more details available there. But one thing we do know, when Jesus was baptized, he identified with the people of God in baptism and death. That's as much as the Bible reveals to us because he became sin who knew no sin. Jesus was sinless He did not need a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. However, he identified with the people, just like all identified with the message uh, of baptism and death. Now, if we go back to Mark and just stick to Mark's account and follow along, we see John talking about Jesus, and here he comes Jesus to be baptized like everybody else, just jumping from verses um, 9 through 10. So what's so special about Jesus? Verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, this is something special about Jesus' baptism, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son and with you I am well pleased. Very unusual. In all the other baptisms, nothing happens to heaven staring and so on. When Jesus comes, the heavens are torn open. Now, that is symbolic of God breaking through into our world, breaking through into our time and space. So, 
if they knew some of their scriptures, they would, they would, they would be able to kind of gather that. For example, in Isaiah 64.1, we hear people praying to God for help. Here's what they pray. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. This idea of rending and tearing, we also find the veil or the curtain of the temple when Jesus was crucified and he breathed this last. The Bible says the veil was torn in two, rent in two from top to bottom. Something significant is happening as God is breaking through and communicating to us as Jesus is getting baptized. So what else do we see here? We see the Spirit coming down as a dove, the Father saying he's well pleased, the Son of God being baptized. A beautiful expression of the Trinity. One being, three persons, Trinity in community. It's beautiful. Very difficult to comprehend with our finite minds. The Bible says it is true. We believe, therefore, that it is true. But we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit at the same place. Very significant time. So Jesus is introduced to us through his baptism. He was empowered by the Spirit. So he hears from his Father that he was delighted in the Son. So here is Jesus now, credentialed, certified, attested, ready to go out and do his work. Well, not quite. Verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Interesting, isn't it? As soon as he was baptized, the first step following that, he was driven to the wilderness. Remember, the father was pleased with the son. He was without sin. This was not Jesus just wandering out to the wilderness and saying, well, let me see if I can get a hold of Satan and punch him down. It was the Spirit that took him there. The Spirit impelled him or drove him to the wilderness. And he was there for 40 days, tempted by Satan. Now that raises a question, doesn't it? Does God tempt us? What does it mean? He tempted his beloved son? What on earth does that mean? Well, if you take that word translated tempt, it means trying or testing to prove. Now, when that word is used, it could be used in a positive connotation and a negative connotation. So, if it is testing to prove one's faith, that's a positive thing. If it is testing, like we read in James 1, if it is testing to entice you to sin, that's a negative one. God never tests us to entice us to sin. James 1, we read that. But God does test us to prove our faith. Do we really believe what we say we believe? He did that with Abraham when he asked him to sacrifice his son, who he had after waiting for so many years, his only son, he asked him to sacrifice. He did that with Job. He let Satan have his way with Job, except that Job could, uh, Satan could not take Job's life. Job was tested and he came through. God does test us to prove our faith. God will never test us to entice us to sin. Now, when they read about the wilderness, it probably would have brought to their mind Israel's journey through the wilderness. Forty years they wandered. You know, the trip from bondage to the promised land 
was a very short trek, if you look at that map. But God made them wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, some of it was punitive, and the rest of it was to train them and prepare them to go into the land and inherit the blessings that God had already provided for them. So they had this wilderness experience. So in the wilderness, though, even though it was a testing to prove their faith, God did provide manna for food. He provided water from the rock. He was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He guided them. He was with them. So even in the wilderness, in the time of testing, God was with them, and they would have remembered that. So whatever it was that Jesus stood for, Satan didn't like that. He was against him. So uh, he goes into the wilderness, and there is this encounter. Mark obviously does not give us any more details about it. But here is what we want to remember. That even in our times of testing, we can find supernatural help. Think about it. Here in the wilderness, you have Satan and wild beasts. But right there, you have the Holy Spirit and angels ministering to him. The conflict is real for us. The struggles are real. But we have the Holy Spirit and angels ministering to us. It was no different in the wilderness. For example, in Deuteronomy 2.7. We read this, For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years the Lord your God has been with you, you have lacked nothing. Even in the times of testing, God is with us. He is Emmanuel. He is with us. So now Jesus is introduced to us through his baptism. And through temptation, coming through this and having passed the test, now he announces the good news from God. Verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, it hints suffering, doesn't it? The prophet of God, he's suffering. Jesus, we know, he suffered. Should be no different for his followers, should it? We should expect suffering. At least it hints to us that discipleship does involve some suffering in the life of Christians. Okay, and uh, Jesus says, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, the gospel of God or the good news is this, says Jesus, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is here. What time is Jesus talking about? And what kingdom is he talking about? If the kingdom is here, where is it on Google Maps? How can I get a visa to get there? Or better yet, how can I get my citizenship in that kingdom? Well, a kingdom is a realm where a particular king rules and reigns. So the kingdom of God is that realm wherever it is where God rules and reigns. And the rule and reign of God was promised, and they were looking forward to it. And that's what Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. Now, to better appreciate that, we need to take a quick tour of biblical history, and let's do that in a few minutes here. 
God created the heavens and the earth as we start in Genesis. He created Adam and Eve. In fact, the Bible says, after each day of creation, God saw that it was good. And when six days were over, when he had finished it, God saw that it was very good. So he had this wonderful creation, Adam and Eve representing him to rule this earth that he had created, to rule on his behalf. Then we see that Satan enters the garden. He questions God's word, tempts Adam and Eve, and they fall into sin. Literally, all hell breaks loose. From Cain killing Abel to all the rest in those generations, you have this kind of depravity and degradation going down the generations. But God had promised there that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent, Genesis 3.15. And that promise has to stand if we can believe God and if he's faithful to his promise. Let's see what he's doing. So what does God do here uh, when there are two forces at play, right? There is an increasing darkness of sin. It's just getting multiplied. Evil is getting worse. And God is faithful. Two forces at play. Let's watch what happens. So things get so bad, God decides, I'm going to wipe these guys out with a flood. Except for one man, Noah, who found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So he rescues Noah. The rest is destroyed. Things don't get any better. After the flood, evil just multiplies and things just go from bad to worse. And then it gets to a climax when people gather together and build a tower, a skyscraper in those days, I'm sure it was. It was made out of bricks, they said, and tar. Now, all of those of you who are in the oil field, you'll have to tell me, did they have have drilling rigs then to find oil? Because they had tar in those days, apparently. Whatever it was, they had technology to build the skyscraper. They wanted to make a name for themselves. We read that in Genesis 11. And they built this tower, reaching all the way up to the heavens. And, and the next verse, I mean, you can't miss the irony. and It's just beautiful. It says, And the Lord came down to see the city and tower which the sons of men had built. So these guys are building a tower. They got the best of technology, right? Build a skyscraper. God kind of says, well, let me go look down and see what these guys are doing with Lego blocks here, right? I mean, we might do all kinds of things. But it's kids play when God looks at it, right? This is is the depravity to which people have gone. So what does he do? He just scatters them. Get out. You can't even talk to one another. You can't even communicate anymore. So they go, and then God chooses Abraham, pulls him out of place, tells him, I'm going to give you a land, a name, and a blessing. And through Abraham, he said, all the nations will be blessed. Then we find the history of Abraham, his son Isaac, and his son Jacob, and Joseph, and so on. Through all kinds of turmoil, and sin, and hostility, and impotence, and barrenness, this thing goes on, till finally, Jacob and his kids are in Egypt, and they're in bondage. For 400 years, these guys are in bondage. And then God rescues them miraculously through Moses, trains them through this wilderness wanderings, and then brings them into the land that he had promised them. His promises never fail, you see. He gave them specific instructions as to how to live and be a light to all around. 
Now, even though God was their king and they had the best of situations, they said, no, no, no. We want a king just like all of our other neighbors. And God warned them, you get a king, that guy will make life miserable for you. Oh, no, no, no. We want a king just like everybody else. All right, you have a king. You have your way. God gives them a king. And then we find kings through David, Solomon, the, 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 the empire, if you will. The nation gets to his zenith temples. It's, it's just a great time. And then we read Solomon had numerous foreign wives, and they turned his heart away from God. So off they go again. There is disobedience, and then you have the two nations of Israel and Judah in the south, Israel in the north, and then you have all kinds of kings, most of them evil, one after the other. A few good kings in Judah, but for the most part, they're all evil kings. Well, now what do you do, God? Well, he decides, all right, I'm going to get you, disperse you, right? Ten tribes in Israel, dispersed. Judah, go into captivity into Babylon. That's it. That's your punishment. You can't keep what I asked you. I got to deal with you because I have a promise to keep. And that, that's not going to change. Then he sends prophets like Ezekiel, uh, calling them to repent. Turn away from your ways, away from God. Turn toward God. And then, uh, then we find with Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, there is a remnant that's coming back. They're kind of building a temple, building the city. And it is only a shadow of what it used to be, but they are there. Now, for 400 years, God is not breaking through. Total silence. All they have is oppression. The Persians, the Greeks, the Syrians, uh, the Romans, all of them oppressing them. And they are longing for God to come. They're expectantly waiting for God to come and establish His rule because they have seen God has been faithful all along. His promises never fail. So now comes Jesus. The heavens are torn open. God comes on the scene. Here comes the king. The kingdom is here. His promises never fail. So the good news here that God is proclaiming is the kingdom is here. It is here in an unprecedented way. Since God is, Jesus is here, God is exerting his influence in very powerful ways, in unusual ways. He is dealing with the devil in new ways. If you read the rest of the gospel, for example, in Mark, you find that Jesus has power over death, his power over diseases, his power over demons, all of that. So the kingdom is here and the victory has kind of begun. Now, if you believe this good news and you are here, that itself is an evidence of a miracle. That the rebel in you and me could turn around because God did something and turn us toward God. That is a miracle in and of itself. The kingdom is here. God is at work and we can see it around we see that in our own church. Uh, we see relationships reconciled. We see some marriages on the brink of disaster. Some of them coming together. We see people who have been healed through prayer. Now, this doesn't mean all evil has been banished. There is devastation all around as well. It doesn't take much for us to see how lives are broken, hearts are broken. Uh, there is all kinds of things that are happening. You see, this is just a pregame show, you know. 
Jesus has just come in and started his work. He has given us the Holy Spirit so that we can do greater works than what he, can, he could do. That's what we read in the Gospel of John. So he is coming back one day when there will be no presence of sin. For us, though, the penalty of sin is gone because Jesus took it on the cross for us. The power of sin is broken. When we could never say no to sin, today we can say yes because of the Holy Spirit that lives in us. The power of sin is broken. But the presence of sin, that's coming for a time when Jesus will come back when there will be no sin anymore. Now, if we want to be a citizen of this kingdom, this kingdom of God, there's only one way we can do it. It is to choose to live under the rule and reign of God, just as any other kingdom. So to put it another way, if we are not living under the rule and reign of God, we are really not part of God's kingdom. We are part of some other kingdom. So Jesus says, the kingdom of God is here, and this is good news. Then he adds, repent and believe the good news. What does it mean to repent? It is this 180 degree turnaround, if you will. You're going in one direction away from God. You turn around and say, I'm going toward God. Now, how does that play out in life? It is like saying, I agree with your view and way of life, God. And I agree that my view and way of life is wrong. Now, how does that happen in real life? What does it really mean? And we see this, for example, um, uh, in Luke 3, where, where we have John. Um, I'm sorry. In Luke 3, we have, um, uh, we have John preaching a repentance of forgiveness, a repentance, uh, baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So people are asking him, what on earth is this repentance? So he's giving a few examples. Luke 3, verse 10. And the multitudes were questioning him, saying, what shall we do? Okay, so what should I do now that you've preached this? He says, he answered and said to them, let the man who has two tunics share with him who has none. And let him who has food do likewise. Okay, shift the focus from yourself to take care of those people who have a need. That's one fruit of repentance. So some tax gatherers said, well, what about us? What can we do uh, uh, here? Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Have some integrity in your life, in your work. Don't just say something and live in a way that doesn't match what you're saying. Have integrity. Do what you're called to do. Well, then some soldiers said, well, what should we do? And he said to them, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely. And be content with your wages. You get the picture. If you're a teacher, you say, what should I do? And they would say, just represent God. Do what he would do. Express his mercy and grace. Have integrity in your work. 
and, and everything else that Jesus would stand for, right? That's exactly what this reorientation of life is all about. The kingdom is very interesting, isn't it? In the kingdom of God, if you want to live, you die. If you want to get, you give. If you want to go high, you go low. If you want to be first, you be last. Everything that we normally think about is turned on its head in the kingdom of God. Right? So this is the reorientation that we have to have if we want to live under the rule and reign of Christ. So how does this kingdom really work among us? How does it expand? Uh, we are not left without any information on that either. Just turn to Mark 4, and there are a few parables there uh, that Jesus says what the kingdom really looks like. First of all, he's got the parable of the soils. Uh, you know, a sower went out to sow. There were four types of soils. One was just the roadside. Then there was a rocky soil where there would be a little sprouting, but then it won't go anywhere because there's not enough soil. Then you've got uh, soil where the plants come up and you've got thorns and thistles, the rituals and cares of this world crush it so it cannot flourish. Then you've got this nice soil, the productive soil, where, they, where the seed can really flourish. He says, the kingdom of God goes this way. The word is preached. And when it falls on good soil, when it falls on soil that's receptive, when it falls on soil that wants to hear, when it foil, falls on soil that wants to respond, when it falls on soil that wants to obey, the kingdom is expanding. This is how the kingdom expands, when people respond to God's word in obedience. Then there is a flourishing and a productive operation going on. The kingdom is expanding. He also says the parable of the mustard seed, where the kingdom expands rather inconspicuously, right? Statistics may say all kinds of things, but God is at work drawing people to himself. It's like a mustard seed, a very insignificant seed. And as it grows, you may not know something till it becomes this big plant. That's the way the kingdom grows. The word is preached. People are responding. It's in, it is not very conspicuous around, but it grows. And then one day, suddenly you realize something big is going on. And then he also says, through the parable uh, of um, uh, the parables of the treasure and the pearl, there is a man who went and found a treasure. He sold everything he had, got the money to buy that piece of property because there was treasure there. This kingdom that we are talking about is of inestimable value. It is of enormous value that is worth selling everything and going after. So Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. The kingdom is growing. Living in the kingdom is really about taking God seriously. Taking God seriously. It is about choosing to live under God's rule and reign. Will we take him seriously? It's about loving what he loves and hating what he hates. It is about aligning our ways and views to his. So here's the question. Who is ruling and reigning in your life today? Who gives you the marching orders today? Will we really take the king 
seriously? That's the question we have to answer. If he is not king, either I am king or somebody else is king. Where are we on that? When we read the Bible, for example, and hear the words in the Gospel of John, these are written, the Gospel there, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. Will we take that seriously? Or you might read in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Open any, any page of the Bible. Will we take it seriously? And we really have to answer that question. So as you reflect on what God is calling you to do, as you've heard his word, think about what might be one thing you do this week where you're going to take God seriously. Don't go for a hundred things, just take one. Which you, where you can obey and take God seriously. The kingdom of God is here. That's the good news. Repent and believe. Father, we thank you for the good news we have. Thank you for you. We are yours. And we live and enjoy your goodness and grace and your mercy with us. As we live, Father, equip us. Move our hearts to live in obedience, to honor your name. We ask this in Jesus' name.